Please allow me to welcome you to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And that is very useful, even though it can be painful. Finding out how the world really works can be extremely disturbing particularly to those people who picture for themselves a world that works, well, it works just the way they want it to work. So I'm happy you are here. You are obviously someone who has come to terms with finding out how the world really works. And you realized that understanding the permanent principles and the timeless truths that underpin almost everything we see happening around us, well, that means you are ready to move forward. And so I welcome you to the only show in the entire digital universe that inspires, elevates, and entertains everyone except dunces, dreamers, drifters, and derelicts. But for the rest of us, we can have some fun together. Now, I must tell you that um, every now and then, somebody who shouldn't be listening to this show, it's just not good for their, it's not good for their equanimity, it's not good for their tranquility, it's not good for their mental harmony. Every now and then, somebody who should not be listening does listen. And they then follow up on the invitation, which I regularly issue an invitation to visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com where you will find under the About Us tab, you will find a Contact Us. You can send me an email, and they do! And they complain bitterly. Now, I will confess that uh, I actually try and answer them just the way I try and answer all other letters. What do they complain about? And I could read you some of these, but uh, I am going to save the time and uh, just short-circuit it by telling you um, they accuse me very often of not being conciliatory enough. I don't say um, some people believe. I say this is how the world really works. I, I should say they say that many people believe this is how the world really works. Or, you know, you've got to be ready, Rabbi Lappin, you've got to be ready to meet people halfway. You've got to be, be less firm and more flexible. So for all of those people who in the last few weeks have, have written in, and just let me make sure you know, uh, it's, it's not even 2% of the letters we've received. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny proportion. Believe me, if it was a bigger proportion, I would be worried and uh, I would... Uh, make some changes around here because uh, uh, ancient Jewish wisdom says that if a lot of people and a lot of people you respect, like I respect anybody who listens to the show, anybody who invests time in studying how the world really works with the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom with me, well, I respect anybody, anytime a lot of people who you respect tell you you're a donkey, uh, it's time to put on a saddle. And so, obviously, 
Uh, I would pay considerably more attention if it uh, was that kind of criticism. But it's the kind of criticism that just is enough to keep me aware that I am abrading some skin, I am rubbing some bruises, and I am pricking some blisters, which is probably a healthy thing, because nobody forces anyone to listen to the show. And so uh, all the credit to you. If, if you disagree and you find me not conciliatory enough and that I don't meet people halfway and I'm too firm and not flexible enough, and you still listen, well, good on you is what I say. So uh, welcome to you along with everybody else. Now, why am I not conciliatory? Why, I, why am I not more flexible? Why don't I speak in more uh, socially conventional terms? Um, it has often been said by many that the world works in... And I don't do that. Why not? Well, um, because does anybody say do not step off the 20th floor of a tall building because of something called gravity, and many people believe that this could be harmful? No, they don't say many, because it is. It doesn't require any kind of diffident approach. No. Um, how about if I say there are those who insist that by gripping a steel collar stay, and uh, for you ladies listening, that is a little piece of, it's a thin piece of stiff steel, about two inches long and uh, about a quarter of an inch wide. And uh, it goes into men's dress shirts, collars, to make the collar points stay down instead of uh, making the man look a bit dorky by having those collars, uh, the corner of the collars lift up and hang over his jacket. And so uh, would I say, there are those who believe that if you grip a steel collar stay in each hand and then push those into a 240-volt uh, three-phase electrical socket or two-phase electrical socket, uh, there are those who believe this could be dangerous. <laughs> no, no, you don't say that because it'll be fatal. It's, it's going to be worse than dangerous. It's fatal. Um, you, I'm not going to modify it by saying there are those who believe that uh, running 240 volts through your body from one hand to the other uh, could be dangerous. No, that's ridiculous. Um, you know what? Be careful not to, not to fall into a raging, flooding torrent of fast-moving deep water because there have been people who have claimed that there could be dangers associated with that activity. <laughs> no. Because the reality of the world is the reality of the world. And, uh, and we've got to understand that there are certain things that are simply not a matter of opinion. Now, there are people like um, Greta Thunberg. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Yes, um, there are those who say that uh, Greta Thunberg's picture of global warming. Well, that is how the world really works. And it's just as real as gravity or electricity. And uh, the answer, of course, is that that simply isn't so. Um, the fact is that uh, electricity has been proven and established. And anybody who doesn't believe that 240 volts can be dangerous 
can work up to it. You can do the experiment. Start off at 90 volts and uh, and you'll find it sufficiently unpleasant. When you go to 110 volts, even more unpleasant. You go to 160 volts, you're in very, very dangerous territory. And it's no longer a question of, well, some people believe. Um, however, global warming and the fact that Miami Beach is going to soon be underwater, which is why, of course, all the luxury residences along um, from Miami Beach in, uh, in, in Dade County all the way up to Broward County, Fort Lauderdale beachfront property, um, Palm Beach County, Mar-a-Lago, all of that, uh, Boca Raton, all of that property is selling very cheap now because, as everybody knows, it's a proven scientific fact that the water is going to be rising. Okay, I, of course it isn't, and it isn't. So uh, there is a huge difference. Um, gravity is not the same as evolution, right? Because anybody can test gravity. You're a scientist, work it out, you can do it. There is no way to test the idea that all life on Earth evolved over billions of years uh, of incremental changes from original primitive protoplasm. There is no evidence. It's a theory, and as a theory, it, it can be explored. At the moment, there is no evidence for it. But it is not a theory that uh, you're going to end up after a 20-story fall from a tall building that uh, the the last uh, moment or two are going to be very bad. Uh, there is no theory about electricity coursing through your body. There is no theory about human beings being able to breathe underwater. And so uh, uh, it, it's perfectly clear that those things would not require any kind of uh, a modifying statement. Oh, some people think. No, uh, it's, it's real. And in the same way, the spiritual laws having to do with how the world really works are equally real, and, um, and they can all be established. The only reason that it's not quite as easy to prove a spiritual law of the kind I'm going to be talking about today uh, at your dining room table one quiet evening as you can when you want to experiment with gravity or electricity um, is because the time frame is a little longer generally. In other words, you can do things with electricity that will produce a result, maybe a fatal result, instantly. But if you tamper with certain spiritual laws, either having to do with you and your life uh, or with society at large, the results may take, you know, they could take even a generation or two generations to become apparent. Um, so in other words, when you come across, whether it's in the United Kingdom or in the United States, which are, are just two countries in which I've explored and investigated this, um, there are some people who are very poor. Part of the reason they're very poor is they don't have jobs. The reason that they don't have jobs, the demographic that I'm talking about, whether in the United Kingdom or uh, in the United States, the demographic is unified by only one thing. It's got nothing to do with skin color. It's got nothing to do with gender. It's got nothing to do with... Uh, uh, ethnic background, 
all it has to do with is that these people are unemployable. Well, how do you make somebody unemployable? I mean, and if, you know, you're a functioning person, you were raised by functioning parents, you are raising your children to be functional adults eventually when they grow up, so it's very difficult for you to even relate to what an unemployable person really is. But an unemployable person is a person who has no impulse control. Whatever they comes into their mind, they say or they do. Uh, it's somebody who has no ability to defer gratification. It's somebody with almost no capacity for self-discipline. It's somebody with very poorly or no developed social skills, uh, people who cannot take orders, people who cannot smile, people who are constantly resentful, people who've been raised with a sense of entitlement, people who've been raised with a sense of victimhood. Uh, I assure you that all of those characteristics, which take a generation to impart, that didn't happen overnight, but anybody who grew up and is now carrying those traits within him or her, that person is unemployable. That's all there is to it. They are totally unemployable. You wouldn't employ them in your business, and you'd be right not to, because it's worse than an act of charity. An act of charity may hurt the recipient, but it isn't going to hurt you. But if you have an unemployable person working for you in your business, it will hurt you. There is no question about it. And so, uh, there are certain spiritual laws that say completely reliably that if you raise children in this fashion, doing this, this, and that, and failing to do these other three things, uh, then you are going to end up with an unemployable adult. That's what you have successfully created. And you say that to somebody, and they laugh at you, and they say, "Go on, that's ridiculous. That's out of the anybody's employer. You, you, all people are equal. All people are the same." And you say, "Well, that's not really true because you are inflicting upon your child uh, irrecoverable problems. You're making them incapable of ever holding down a job." And the person says, "Ah, come on," and you say, "Look." The only way to prove it is keep doing what you're doing and watch how your child comes out 20 years down the road. But people have a short attention span. And so that's why spiritual rules are much more difficult to establish. But uh, nonetheless, they are rules that we have to seriously pay attention to. And that's what we're going to do right now. That's right. Uh, I'm going to now share with you uh, information on, well, what, for lack of a better term, can be called the tyranny of biology. That's right. There obviously is a part of each and every one of us that is spiritual, and it's almost to the extent that many times we feel a little frustrated at the fact that our bodies are not as perfect as our souls. There are times that we are doing things that we're excited about or enjoying or, or just have a very strong drive to complete out of a sense of responsibility and diligence. And 
you know, you you say, I've got to get something to eat, or I'm so hungry, I'm just losing energy. And you think to yourself, you know, gosh, my, my, my body isn't as good as my soul. My soul wants to keep doing whatever it is I'm doing. My body is betraying me. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you're a runner. Okay, and generally speaking, when when people uh, want to run and they enjoy the physical endurance of of running or any other form of physical workout, um, you know the 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 soul wants to keep going, but sometimes the the body just gives in; it it just can't. So there is a reality. There is a very real thing about our bodies. And that's what I'm. That's part of what I'm talking about when I say the tyranny of biology. So having to eat is just a reality. We do need to eat. And by the way, as an aside, I'm not saying, oh, we need to feed humanity. How are we going to feed seven billion human beings? No, uh, this is not a societal thing. This is personal. I wish to eat. Right? That's it. Uh, we're not holding a symposium on fighting world hunger. No, we're talking about a very simple reality. And that is that uh, you and me, we all need, uh, I should have said you and I, but you and I, we all need a certain number of calories a day. We don't all need the, exactly the same number, but we all need a certain number of calories a day. Where are those obtainable from? Well, for the most part, uh, they are obtainable from the earth. And that is a very simple reality. We all need food. We need fuel to keep ourselves alive. And whether that is in the form of bread or whether it's in the form of meat that has to grow uh, on grass and pasture or, or whether it's fruit and vegetables, but it's the output of the earth that we need. It's, it's a biological reality. Now, we try and surround it with ceremony to make it a little less depressing. Uh, you know, be, it, it, it would be like somebody trying to uh, participate in a, a long-distance car race. And every time you have to stop for fuel, it's incredibly frustrating. And you have a pit crew that moves very quickly and refuels your car. And, and they have high-pressure pumps that fill your gas tank quickly because every stop is frustrating. Well, for us human beings, it could easily devolve into that as well. That every time we have to have some food, it would be incredibly frustrating. It's distracting us from the things we want to achieve and the goals we wish to accomplish. And so we turn every meal into an occasion, right? This is something your mother knew. It's why she didn't like you to stand at the refrigerator with the door open, reaching in and gobbling something from each shelf. No. Uh, she wanted you to sit down and she wanted you to wash your hands before you sat down. She might even have wanted you to say a grace before meals. All of this surrounding the otherwise mundane and potentially depressing process of eating with a certain amount of ceremony. Now, 
uh, our bodies are real, right? When we speak about the biology of tyranny or the tyranny of biology, that's what we're talking about. Your body is real. You can't ignore it. It's, it's got certain realities. Now, it doesn't mean obesity, obviously. I don't have to say that. Here's another reality about our bodies, and that is that uh, we have an instinct for laziness. We all would like to get as much giving as little as we possibly can. We would like to get as much food for the least amount of work. That's what we'd like to have. Now, again, we elevate that rather ignoble sentiment by speaking in terms of efficiency, and it's not without merit. So we got to remember then that these two facts about the body, these two little pieces of biological tyranny, number one, that we need to eat, and number two, that we're all you know, a little bit lazy and we'd like to be able to have as good a meal as possible with as little effort as possible. Well, uh, these two taken together uh, make it rather important that we should find the easiest way to extract a living from what is mostly a reluctant earth, right? Ever since those fateful words in Genesis, um, the, the earth has not just yielded of its bounty. Uh, human beings have had to work the earth. We've had to force it to give up and yield a living to us. So trying to make the earth give us a living and to try and do that in the with the least possible work, that's what we do. And it turns out that by far and away, the easiest way, or you might prefer the language, the most efficient way to extract enough food to survive or better from an often reluctant earth turns out to be by cooperating with other human beings. And when we do that and we use the magic of specialization, well, then it turns out that indeed by trading with other people and by supplying them with the things they need and for doing work for people who need my labor and in exchange for that receiving something called money and then using that money to buy from other people the wheat and the water and the meat and the fruit and the vegetables I wish, that turns out to be by far and away the least costly way of obtaining food. The other way is being a subsistence farmer. You stay on your little plot of land and you try and grow enough wheat and enough vegetables and enough uh, protein in order to survive. And that turns out to be a 24-7, 365 days of the year struggle. But if instead of doing that, instead of trying to do it all yourself, you use the miracle of cooperation with other humans, and you specialize, and they specialize, and then you use the great invention of money to... Um, to trade with one another, turns out we all get to eat with remarkably little effort. It truly is absolutely amazing. Uh, as I think everyone knows, the, no, the, the idea that somebody is hungry in America today uh, is ridiculous. If anybody is really hungry in America, then they're not just, they're failing to, re to just reach out a hand. Uh, even without the charitable works of so many good organizations, even without that, 
there is so much food in the United States, so much is wasted. Um, it's it's there is just no what reason for any person who is uh, uh, sentient, somebody who who is able to operate, is mentally stable and and is not in the grip of any delusions. Any person functioning healthily is more than capable of getting enough food to eat. That's ne- that's not even an issue. It's not even a challenge. Well, there's more biological tyranny. We're not done yet. It turns out that we human beings crave sensual pleasure. And would you believe it? But the highest level of sensual pleasure available to people on this planet is uh, only by interaction with another human being. And so there again, if you wanted to just operate as a completely isolated and alone individual. You didn't want to be compelled to mixing with other people. You have nothing but disdain and contempt for other human beings who are not nearly as good as you or smart as you or pretty as you, and you don't want to mix with other people. Well, guess what? You're going to be hungry because if you don't interact economically with others, you're going to have to become a subsistence peasant, and that is definitely a hungry lifestyle. Uh, And you're going to have to be cut off from sensual pleasure. And, And here's something else, another part of biological tyranny. You are going to have to acknowledge that men and women are different. Male and female were created different from one another. Now, that is so frustrating to a certain mindset that they devote an enormous amount of energy as well as coercion of other people into denying that reality. Talk about deniers, my goodness. Uh, the, the, and I've spoken about this often on, on the show, how much the left uh, in, invests in trying to persuade gullible people that men and women are exactly the same. Uh, let's look at some more biological tyranny. Death. Death is one of them, and uh, it's, it's a huge problem. And it's one that an entire generation of children have now been raised with in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and parts of of Europe, um, a large part of Europe, children have been raised with no religious faith. The spread of secularism um, is so powerful that you really have substantial parts of the population of modern Western countries that are raised with absolutely no faith at all. And for a child to be raised with the idea that uh, the end is the end and that uh, when one dies, there is absolutely nothing left from, uh, but dust, is it's not only false, but it, obviously that's not a scientifically provable reality. There are many things in life that we have to make decisions on long before there is enough reliable data to make a scientifically supportable determination. Uh, Who you marry. There's no way you're going to know everything there is to know about another human being before you commit to sharing your lives. And so you go ahead with something called faith, which is an immensely powerful tool 
available in the repertoire of human capability to such an extent that those who lack faith, and I don't mean only religious faith, that's part of it, but there are other aspects of faith as well. If you're not able to motivate, no, sorry, I don't mean the word motivate. I mean, if you're not able to activate your faith muscle, you are dreadfully and fatally handicapped in many occupations, much in business. Uh, there are doctors, and I, I speak to doctors who are at the cutting edge of, e- of dealing with emergency all the time. Without faith, it is almost impossible to function. What is faith? Faith is that I'm going to go ahead with this incision. I'm going to start the surgery in spite of the fact that the survival rate from the surgery is low. I'm going to be filled with faith that this is going to work. They're just like athletes. If an athlete is not able to fill his soul with faith, before he launches himself off the starting block to try and win a medal at the 100-meter race, he's not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Faith is absolutely crucial in many, many areas. And, uh, and one of those areas is dealing with death. Now, if you are an adult, then you, know, you can make your own decisions of how you want to run your life. And you want to run your life as if this is just, you know, one time round the, the merry-go-round. And uh, when it's over, it's over. It's all dust and worms and that's it. Uh, you've gone and there's nothing. If that's what you want to live by, that's fine. But explain to me why raising a child like that is not child abuse. And that's, that's really, really disturbing to me that children are being raised to believe in a nihilism, a hopelessness, a, a sense that the end is just oblivion. Well, I don't think it's, it's surprising to me at all. It's not surprising in the slightest that um, there is a fascinating study, and it's, it's one I've actually quoted from before. It's actually from the uh, American Journal of Epidemiology. And so we're talking about serious, serious stuff. This is a real medical journal. And uh, the study was done not by religious scholars. Uh, it was a medical study. And it is entitled Associations of Religious Upbringing with Subsequent Health and Well-Being from Adolescence to Young Adulthood, an Outcome-Wide Analysis. And this study is so persuasive that even, you know, even if they're only half right, raising a young person with no faith is abuse. That's all there is to it. Um, they are able to show that uh, children raised in families in which worship service plays a regular part and which, in which Judeo-Christian religious values play a part, and yes, they did study that, and uh, all their testing were controlled for socio-demographic characteristics. They were all controlled for family structure, maternal health, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, this is an extremely... A wonderful study. You look into this and you shake your head. It's extraordinary because what it shows is that uh, uh, unhealthy and premature sexual involvement, uh, cr- involvement with criminal behavior, um, 
involvement with drugs, involvement with school, bad academic performance, tremendously influenced adversely by an absence of any kind of uh, religious background. Wow, that's huge. And so, um, and so dealing with death, that is one of the biggest tyrannies of biology altogether, right? The fact that there is such a thing or the fact that when people become aged, they become infirm. It's a biological reality. Or that fertility declines, particularly in women, after a certain age. Maybe it's declining all along. What the age is can be argued. But the the idea that if a woman wants to raise a family, there is a time beyond which she should not plan on trying to have children, that is a tyranny. And it's not surprising that every possible effort is being expended in order to eliminate that tyrant. Uh, One of the ways is the number of companies that have now sprung up uh, advertising that they will freeze your eggs. They address themselves to young women and saying, hey, there's choice ahead of you. Um, instead of having a family forced on you, you shouldn't be the victim of tyranny. No, not even biological tyranny. Go ahead and freeze your eggs, and that way you can reproduce whenever you choose to. Well, that is uh, advertising that should definitely be identified as uh, dishonest advertising, because while it's certainly true you can freeze your eggs, it's certainly not true that the subsequent uh, fertilization procedure happens easily or smoothly or even reliably. And, and that's really one of the biggest uh, tyrannies of biology that we are seeing occurring in general, so in Western civilization right now. But it's not new. Uh, Back in the late 60s, in the late 1960s, there started a television sitcom in the United States of America called All in the Family. And it featured a a sort of working class guy. I think they said they placed him in Queens, New York, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Archie Bunker, and he was married to Edith, and he had a daughter, Gloria. And Gloria eventually married a guy, Mike. And Archie is depicted as this extremely, it's a very negative depiction of a conservative. And yes, the creator of the series, the man who produced, I think directed the series, um, is an extremely liberal Jewish guy, uh, as it turns out, a guy called Norman Lear. And uh, the the series did considerable Um, Well, in a way, damage, it certainly impacted the culture because um, uh, Archie Bunker is this sort of very funny, by the way. It's a brilliantly done series. And Norman Lear, by the way, who who created it, uh, is 97 years old at the time I am uh, preparing this show. May he live and be healthy. Uh, But what an extraordinary job he did. This was an, a very impactful show on American society. And so Archie is this uh, depicted as this bigoted conservative guy. He's, uh, he's down on everybody in a sense, but very funny. At the same time, 
um, he's the only one actually working. He's not only supporting his wife, but he's supporting his daughter and son-in-law. His son-in-law is very enlightened and liberal and very progressive, and his daughter is sort of somewhere in between. And, of course, they're all living on Archie Bunker. And Mike and Gloria, they look down on, on Archie and Edith, and they, uh, they, they see all their flaws. But the bottom line is they're still freeloading on them. And so uh, Norman Lear really created a, a fantastic show. I tell you all of this because there is one episode, and I would have loved to have played this for you on the show, but um, obviously I can't. The copyright issues are, uh, are, are significant, and so I, I just have to tell you about it. Uh, it was done in 1974, and um, the episode was called Gloria's Shock. That's right, it was called Gloria's Shock. And uh, what happened was, around the table, they're sitting and talking, and uh, Mike, Gloria's husband, Archie and Edith's son-in-law, casually drops that he wouldn't want to have any children. Uh, It's episode seven in the fifth season, season five, episode seven. And you might you you might find it interesting. I did not have much trouble finding it on the internet, so I was able to take a look at the show. Um, I was not living in the United States at the time it aired, and so I didn't. Uh, I never actually saw it, but uh, I have seen replays of it. So, glorious shock on all in the family has um, Mike calmly announcing that he would never bring a child into the, this world. He's not planning on children. Well, um, Gloria, his wife, is very upset by this. She's extremely disturbed because while she shares all his liberal outlooks, it's a terrible world, there's too many people on the planet, there's pollution, how can you bring an additional child into this world? And uh, she's terribly upset about that because she uh, she said, we always, you knew that I, won- when we got married, you knew that I'm looking forward to having a family. You knew that. He said, yes, I don't mind adopting. And she says, anyway, needless to say, I'm, I'm not going to spoil the whole thing. Bottom line is, you, you don't even have to see it. The only reason I'm mentioning it is, I want you to know that this goes back a long time. This is 1974. It's a long time ago. Uh, don't forget the the decline of the West uh, began according to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin dating system. It began in 1962 or thereabouts. So we're only 12 years into it, and there already is a a very trend-setting show uh, pitting the modern with it progressive. Um, nice-looking young couple, Mike and Gloria, against Archie and Edith. Edith wants to be a grandma, and she's she's poignant and sad about it. And she's, um, you know, and their the, their the children are calmly explaining to them that the correct outlook today is not to have children. That's that's absolutely clear. Anyway, uh, for those of you who do not follow the series, and I and I do not encourage. Uh, the investment of time in screen watching, you know that. I'll just save you the trouble to to let you know that all works out okay. Eventually, she uh, she does have a child. She does get pregnant. Everything is fine. But at the time, this is what's going on. Now, uh, it's very interesting because in 1960, 72 percent, 72 percent 
and I'm talking about the United States now, and I'm speaking about 18 years old and upwards, not talking about 25-year-olds and upwards, but 18 and up, what percentage of the United States of America's population was married? In other words, I'm going back to 1960. I'm putting all the Americans below the age of 18 out of the picture. Everyone who's left is 18 and upwards, and we're looking to see what percentage of them are married. And do you know what the answer is? Nearly 75% of them are married. Right? Pretty amazing. Now, what is it in in 2016? I have figures uh, only of tw- up to 2016. Uh, figure is down now to about 40%. So from about 75 to about 40. That's a huge drop. And so naturally, it uh, was interesting to me to take a look and see, um, could it be that there is a parallel to fertility? What's happening? In other words, if that's the drop in marriages, and I know there are lots and lots and lots of people having children without being married, but what is the correlation between drop in marriages, which is unarguable, and a drop in fertility? Well, that wasn't hard to find out. Sure enough, in that same period in the United States of America, incredibly, Uh, the fertility rate was 3.8 children, and that means per lifetime, uh, 3.8 children per woman, and now it's down to about 1.7. Okay, that is amazing. So that means now that the rate of having children in the United States of America is below replacement level. Now, you have to be incredibly foolish to think that this is no problem because you can just make it up with immigration. I'm not going to, that would, that would be a separate show, and I've spoken a lot about that on shows in the past, and so I'm not going to invest any time at the moment. I'm just going to say that you have to be really foolish to think that you can make it up with immigration. Let me just uh, tell you, what are the words Holland Sweden and Germany suggest to you. These were countries that said, oh, our fertility rate is down to 1.7. No problem. We'll just bring in young males from the Middle East and North Africa, and we'll keep our working population stable. Well, they did arrive. They don't work. They um, are very heavily criminally engaged. And again, you only have to visit um, Holland, Germany, Sweden, Norway in order to see what an absolute calamity the dream of integrating Muslim immigrants has been in those countries. A calamity. Are there zero success stories? Of course not. (laughs) Human beings are human beings. But in terms of huge numbers of unemployed and unemployable young males praying like uh, dull-eyed predators on the native population. Just talk to people in Sweden, talk to people in Germany, talk to people in Holland, and you find that that doesn't work. So we're not going to spend any more time on that. But uh, let's take a look at what some people say about the drop in population. 
They say this is good. There's too many people on the planet. Overpopulation is hurting the environment. Uh, you get the idea, right, that the earth is more important than humanity. Uh, the earth is more important than people. Uh, the environment is more important than people. And this is why it is that there are many so-called environmentalists, uh, including many who work for the United States government, who want to prohibit uh, human beings from visiting national parks. That's right. They actually design. I mean, they've written on this. They want to prohibit human beings from visiting national parks because it would be better for the environment if people stayed away from national parks. All right. Just think about the implications of that, okay? All right. So we're looking at a fertility rate of 1.7. What is a replacement rate? Um, about 2.2, in other words, to allow for uh, um, casualties and, and, and accidents, bad things. Uh, if, you, if you replace uh, a husband and a wife, a mother and a father with only two children, then you don't quite keep up the population level. If you go to 2.2 approximately, you pretty much stay steady. Your population level stays steady. That extra 0.2 allows for people who don't have children, like Senator Lindsey Graham, right? A Republican senator in the United States of America, never married, never had children, and uh, from time to time finds it necessary to assure the population that he's not homosexual. But uh, regardless, doesn't matter. 2.2 2.2 is kind of what you need. So now the United States is down to 1.7. People say, well, that's fine. There's too many people as it is. And don't forget, and th- this is one of the best things of all. When I say best things, this was one of the most entertaining arguments I encountered. Uh, don't, uh, don't worry about it. A shrinking population is fine. You know why? Because we have artificial intelligence. And you know what else? We have uh, growing technology. We have increased use of uh, digital technology and automated technology and robot technology. And that means we need fewer workers. And so everything is good. It's wonderful that the population is shrinking. Well, let's see if that is true. So not only does fertility match and correlate with um, uh, marriage figures, in other words, if you draw a graph of this incredible, if you look at published graphs, of this incredible decline in marriage between 1960 and 2016, uh, you will be able to match that graph to a similar graph of declining birth rates in the United States of America between 1960 and 2016. And sure enough, the lines, the graph lines match. But that's not all. You can actually also match it to GDP, gross domestic product. In other words, the aggregate of economic activity in that society. Now, in Japan... It has uh, become very severe. The demographic uh, crisis of declining population is very real. Now, a lot of people say, well, they should just bring in immigrants. No, they shouldn't. Uh, immigrants would not, would not have the Japanese cultural characteristics, and it would be a calamity. They're very wise not to. 
But um, as we see from countries that try to solve their demographic population crisis by bringing in immigrants doesn't work so well. So um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's really a very simple thing. Uh, I've often pointed out that the GDP in the United States of America, the GDP of Georgia, is eight times the GDP of Rhode Island. And then if you check the population figures, the population of, of Georgia is not surprisingly about eight times the population of Rhode Island. Uh, the more people you've got operating in an economy, the better it is for that economy. And when the numbers go down, obviously the economy shrinks. Uh, in Japan, between 2009 and 2016, just to show you how the, uh, the decline, the population in decline in America has been exponential, which is, if you think about the mathematics, is exactly what it would be. They have closed, you know how many primary schools have been shut? Ele how many elementary schools have been shut in Japan in the seven years between 2009 and 2016? Yep. Over 2,000 primary schools have been shut. I mean, kids just aren't there. And um, it's very, very serious. Uh, population not only adds to the economic vitality of a society, but it also impacts its ability to defend itself. Now, that's obviously all tied together, right? Because uh, in order to fight a war, you need a very vibrant economy. You, you've got to be able to not only pay for the bullets and the guns, you've also got to be able to pay the people who are making the bullets and the guns. <clears throat> and you've also got to be able to make sure that there are enough people growing food and driving buses and keeping the system operating. So a drop in population makes a country less capable of defending itself. It's not an accident that if you look at the World War II population figures, you know, it was not uh, Liechtenstein that attacked Poland. Uh, <clears throat> it was not, uh, you know, it was not Luxembourg that launched the war by attacking Germany. No, Germany launched the war in 1938 their population was 80 million people. That was the biggest on the European continent. By contrast, um, Britain was about 50 million. And so, quite correctly, Hitler said, yeah, I, I think 80 million can beat 50 million. And he wouldn't have been wrong. Obviously, spiritual factors do come into it as well. But... Uh, just on the material factors, he said, yeah, 80 million Germans, 50 million uh, Englishmen, yep, we can do this. Well, he didn't realize <clears throat> that uh, it wouldn't just be 50 million Englishmen, it would be 50 million Englishmen, plus all the Canadians, plus all the Australians, plus all the New Zealanders, plus all the South Africans, plus all the Rhodesians, and all of those people would also be involved in the war. And he also didn't count on that it would be America in the war. America at that time had 130 million people. By the way, world population at the time of World War II was 2.3 billion. We're about 7 billion now, 2.3 billion in 1939. But uh, so there it was, 80 million Germans, 
50 million Englishmen, uh, 75 million Japanese, by the way, almost the same as Germany. And so, not surprisingly, Japan had successfully invaded China. Times have changed. Isn't it amazing? Um, historians will write about this, that at the, on the eve of World War II, Japan dominated China. And now, in, uh, in only 75 years' passage of time, uh, China is ready to dominate Japan. So, but you see, again, if we're talking about how the world really works, numbers of people really matter. Let me give you some other examples. Um, I, every now and then, if I have speeches within a certain distance of where I am or of an airport, I will prefer to drive rather than fly for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's got it's to make sense time-wise. But you'd be amazed how long it takes to fly. When you add in the time you've got to drive to the airport, how much before the flight you have to arrive, then there's the flight, and then there's a waiting for your baggage. Yes, I do check bags at the other end, and then there is getting to your destination from the airport, and you find that, in my case, for me personally, uh, even 300 miles could well make sense, depending on the kind of uh, flights available, but... I have been known to drive to a speaking event that is 300 miles from where I happen to be rather than fly. Beyond that, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore. But, um, uh, you know, I just I prefer driving. And, um, and from time to time, I've had the, the benefit of a, a driver. And then it's not even a question because then you can actually work on the route better than you can on an airplane. It's, very, it's not that easy to work on an airplane. Certainly, if you're traveling coach, it's very tough indeed. So uh, I drive. Why am I telling you this? Because I've driven through parts of the country. I've driven through southern Michigan. Um, I sp where oh, I spoke at Hillsdale College. Uh, I, drove from, I drove from Chicago to Champaign, Illinois, <clears throat> for a, a speech. I've driven across much of Pennsylvania. Why am I telling you this? Because I have driven through small towns that have been boarded up, and it is downright depressing. That's what happens when population vanishes. Right? And there you are, minding your own business, you're living in a nice little town, and then all of a sudden, uh, a, a, a nearby factory closes, and people move away, they've got to go and find work elsewhere. And all of a sudden, your nice little town turns into a place where the library no longer has enough money to keep functioning, and the stores you patronized, and the coffee shop you liked, and the restaurant you all closing because there are not enough people. Your life has been, you've done nothing, but your life has been impacted badly by a decline in population. In other words, contrary to what you will always hear from the left, population is good. It's not bad. Now, it's got to be a well-behaved population, right? I have been in uh, stadiums of uh, 60,000 Christians uh, for a prayer event, and I felt perfectly safe. 
There was zero crime. There wasn't even pickpocketing going on. There was nothing. It was absolutely quiet and tranquil. I have also been in large crowds of uh, unpleasant people where the self-restraint was zero, where impulse control was zero, uh, where deferment of gratification was zero, and it was frightening and unpleasant and dangerous. So obviously, when I say population is wonderful, it's good, it's positive, I'm talking about good population, goes without saying. But um, uh, here's something else that goes down. When population shrinks, optimism goes down. Um, look, I know there are some lovely retirement communities uh, in Florida from time to time. I have visited people in uh, communities where nobody below a certain age is allowed. So you go around the community and it's very interesting, but there are no children, not a single child. There's no young people. There's no young families unless they're there to visit grandpa. But it's only older people. I've got to tell you, I'm I'm, I'm not alone when I say that um, it's a little sad. There is not a spirit of optimism in the air. What you find is a sort of sad attempt to have fun. Sad attempt to, oh, let's pretend we're all having fun. Look at all the activities we're doing. And many of these places are, are really quite lovely, and they, they do provide in many cases, perhaps uh, um, the best solution for an aging couple or an aging person. I get it. But that's not to say they're happy, wonderful places. They may be as good as you can get if, if that's your situation, but it's not the same as a, a community in which there are children playing outside and uh, <clears throat> you, you hear them playing and you hear women talking to one another and the guys come home from work and when the train pulls into the local station, there's a big crowd of people. It's, it's a different feeling of optimism. And when optimism dies, the aggregate of human happiness declines. It really does. This is not a good thing. When, when population goes down, it's hugely problematic. Now, let me tell you another piece of biological tyranny, and that is that uh, you, you have to explain to a man and a woman that when you get old and you cannot support yourself, you can't work with quite the same energies you were able to when younger, well, guess what? Uh, you are going to need your children to support you. And the couple responds and says, you are mad. You must be living in the past. In the old days, with an agricultural economy, it may then have been true that it was necessary for a farmer and his wife to have children to send out to the field, that they can still work the field and bring in the food so there'd be something for the old people to eat. We get that. But nowadays, it's no longer true because people have pension plans and they have investment portfolios and they have 401ks and they've got all kinds of retirement financial plans in place to which i respond yes i get that but what you're missing is that every one of those pension plans and every one of those retirement programs and every one of those investment portfolios has the money invested in what? In equities of 
companies that make things, that companies that earn a profit, and it's the profit that provides the revenue upon which you depend for your retirement. And the, the retirement plan maybe invests in a mutual fund or a money market, but the bottom line is all that money depends on being invested in companies that provide goods or services and earn a profit by so doing. And every one of those companies needs customers. They need growth. Every company needs to show growth, otherwise it doesn't last. And so people have to be there in order for that to happen, right? See, that, it doesn't make any difference. The biological tyranny is that two parents need 2.2 children, statistically, in order to survive. And it makes no difference whether those 2.2 children are sent to work in the field or whether those 2.2 children are sent to work at Microsoft or at Uber or at anywhere else at all. It makes absolutely no difference. Uh, the, the basic biological reality is sheer tyranny. There just is no escaping that simple truth. And that is that it's not just society needs people. No, you do as well. Your own welfare, the feeling of happiness you have, the society in which you live, the uh, economy, all of these things are very contingent on whether the people around you are bringing new life into the world or they are not. It, it really does matter very much indeed. Now, there's absolutely nothing that government can do about it, although this hasn't stopped them from trying. Governments obviously realize that if the population goes down, this is bad economically, it's bad militarily, and who knows, for the individual bureaucrats, they probably figured out it's bad for them too, because a smaller population needs fewer bureaucrats, and their job is going to be on the line. So they realize that the large and increasing number of young people who used to be at a point in life when they were having babies and raising children are now not even getting married, they realize this is a problem. So what have they tried to do? Well, one thing they've tried to do is incentivize women to have children by money. And uh, you might wonder how successful has that been? Well, uh, there was an American welfare program begun by the president in 1935. Right, we're talking about depression time. And they were very worried about um, widows. This is all it was, was just for widows uh, who lost their husbands and were raising children. And they said, you know what? Society doesn't want those women to leave their kids and go to work. Right? We want those women to be able to raise their children. And so uh, they went ahead um, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed into law the uh, Social Security Act of August 1935. And um, uh, Title IV of that act was a, uh, a program called, it actually was called Title IV, but it got renamed as the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC. 
And so all through the, the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s, it was a very small program, mostly taking care of widows. But at a certain point, it suddenly exploded. Uh, women realized, certain women, again, an unemployable demographic, certain women decided that this was money for kids. And they started turning out children and increasingly uh, gaining greater shares of AFDC, Aid for Families with Dependent Children. And it grew and grew and grew from just a, 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 a tiny, tiny number of widows on it to millions, tens of millions of, of women getting AFDC. And then just to make sure that it was a true disaster, government uh, then made sure that man in the, any man in the home invalidated it so there has to there have to be absolutely unmarried women having children the government will take care of them it's no surprise that what happened in america is what happened and this remained um getting worse and worse and worse until 1996 when bill clinton did welfare reform which by the way hillary is apologizing for now or was apologizing Anyways, um, he scaled back AFDC, renamed it Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and um, but then it quickly started growing again. It was basically the same thing, just renamed. There was political massaging to make it more acceptable because hardworking Americans, and for those of you who are not in the United States, and it's, it's so great to know how many of you are listening in other countries. I really appreciate that. Um, we've got somebody listening in the Virgin Islands. Can you believe that? We've got a regular listener in the Virgin Islands, which I love. So maybe we've even got more, but I know of, I know of one lady listening in the Virgin Islands. Um, so if you're outside the United States, then um, you just may not be that familiar with exactly what happens as a depopulation in society uh, can never be encouraged by government. Um, it just it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Uh, there was a case in uh, not Sweden, Denmark actually. Just a it was 2015 really, late in 2015. The government of Denmark uh, embarked on an advertising campaign. I've seen these by the way. They had posters, billboards all around Copenhagen, and pretty tasteless stuff by the way. Um, one showed a picture of chicken eggs and then had a big, big wording superimposed. Have you counted your eggs today? Um, then there was a, uh, an, a poster about a sort of enlarged uh, human sperm cell. And it said, you know, do they swim too slow? And things like that. And uh, this was uh, government funded to try and do something about Denmark's declining population, right? Because everybody understands it is a problem. Basically, for a society to function, you need a pyramid shape. You need more people in every generation than the one before it. Now, I understand, of course, there are many people, oh, that's unsustainable. You're going to reach the limit eventually. Okay. Uh, let's not worry about that for right now, right? The, the, the danger being faced by many civilizations, many, many cultures at the moment, is too few people, not too many people. And so 
um, the Danish Fertility Society worked with the government to come up with these kinds of things. And uh, they've been very worried, right, because the fertility rate in Denmark for decades already has been at the figure that America has just arrived at, which is about 1.7. I told you 2.2 is about replacement level, keeps a steady, stable population. Denmark, 1.7 pretty serious. Now, you should think that all the strategies already employed by Denmark would uh, would have made sure of solving the problem. It's a, it's a wealthy country. Um, new parents get 12 months paid family leave. There's very highly subsidized daycare. Uh, women under the age of 40 can get free in vitro fertilization, funded free, right? Funded by their fellow citizens, by the government. Nothing Denmark has done has elevated the fertility level. It just keeps on dropping. And so uh, it's a problem. It's a huge problem. It reminds us that the question of having children is one, first of all, getting married and then having children and then raising children and raising fantastic children Uh, These are questions that go beyond the bedroom. These are questions that go beyond the couple, beyond the family. These are societal-wide questions. Not that society has the power or the ability or the moral authority to force people to breed. Of course not. No more than China had a right to forbid people from having children. Of course not. Uh, But what do you do if you're a society? What is the only way to have people having children? Well, you're not going to like the answer. I can tell you that. You're not going to like the answer. But uh, the answer is that religious cultures have children. Secular cultures commit suicide, demographic suicide. It's as simple as that. And in this case, I uh, have to include Islamic religion, not just Judeo-Christian Bible-based religion, although uh, it is obviously uh, very noticeable there. So um, there it is. The only thing for a society to do that wants to survive, there is nothing else it can do except encourage religion and encourage faith. And when you do that, not only are you going to have more children, but you're actually going to also have children that um, are less likely to be um, troubled, mentally challenged, uh, behaviorally challenged. That's right. The study I quoted you from at the beginning of the show, very persuasive. And so really, this is one of those questions. And what I'm hoping is that there may be some people listening who are a little bit like Mike and Gloria on All in the Family from uh, Season 7, Episode 5, 1974, who are giving themselves all the reasons they don't want children. I'm hoping that among the listeners to this show, and please, if you know anyone like this, see if you can't encourage them to hear it, because I would like to hear from them uh, what their feelings are. In other words, you know, you're worried about society, Uh, you're worried about the future, well, having children and raising good children is part of the future. And 
why why have you decided that it is the better decision? Well, some young people have answered this in articles I've had the chance to explore. Some have answered very honestly, and that is we're selfish. We're enjoying life. We don't want to spend anything on other people. We like our lives the way they are at the moment, and uh, and we're not going to have children. That's all there is to it. And so the uh, the question is twofold, right? From a societal level, what happens to countries like Holland, like Denmark, like the United States, where this line of thinking, which, by the way, is almost inevitable in secularism, right? It is very hard to see a secular society with large families. Whenever anybody sees large families, they say religious Catholics, religious Latter-day Saints, religious Jews. That's what people say. I've, you know, my Mrs. Lappin and I, blessed with seven, we're constantly being asked, you know, oh, you must be religious. Everybody knows the simple reality, and that is that uh, secular fundamentalism destroys demographics. Secular fundamentalism means declining population. And uh, religion means growing population. And this is completely regardless of economic factors. Economists like saying when societies evolve economically and they achieve higher levels of development, the fertility rate goes down. Um, yeah, that, that may well be true, but it goes down only among part of the population. It, go down, it goes down somewhat. What happens is as those populations become not only more affluent but also more secular, population goes down catastrophically among everybody but the religious part of the population. So uh, from a societal level, declining populations are hugely problematic, but how about from an individual level? And I would love to hear from you. Write me an email. Send me a letter on why it is that having children is a positive for individuals as well. Or in other words, how would you phrase your argument to a, uh, a 28 or 29-year-old young person saying, I'm not getting married I'm not having children. Or I am getting married. We're both deciding not to ever have children. We do not want to raise children. And here's the one argument I don't want you to use. And I'll give you the uh, website where you can send me your, your letters. Here's the one argument I don't want you to use. I do not want you to say uh, eventually you'll get to be old enough where you'll really want children and it'll be too late. Don't use that. That's, that's too obvious and too basic. What, what else could you say? to a 27, 28, 29-year-old young person who's decided to never have children, what argument could you employ that you think might be effective, that might be persuasive, might even be compelling? What would you say that might change the mind of a young person determined not to have children? And the reasons, by the way, they're deciding not to have children are not ones that it's bad for the environment and we, we believe we should rather adopt so that way we'll take care of children who are already here. No, the arguments they're using are selfish arguments. I like my lifestyle the way it is and I don't want it to change. How might you suggest changing that? 
And that is as far as we're going to go. I want you to go to my website because that is from where you can dispatch me a letter. It is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, one word, obviously. And uh, go ahead and shoot me a letter. Let me know what you would say to someone who says, I'm selfish. I don't want to have children. I like my life the way it is, not changing. Um, that would be very good. I'd love to hear from you. You can also make sure that you are able to subscribe and receive Thought Tools, Susan's Musings, Ask the Rabbi, all of that. Explore. You'll also be able to read uh, past discussions on those topics. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. You'll also be able to go to the store where individual books are on a special discounted price. Use the discount code GIFT25, GIFT25, G-I-F-T-25, and you will get a a significant 25% discount on all books. That's not sets of books, but on individual books, and you can buy as many as you like uh, at that same discounted price. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com and you head over to the store section of the website. We've got books like the Thought Tool books. Uh, They are terrific. We've got Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. You can read about the books on the website. Uh, We've got Business Secrets from the Bible. We've got Thou Shalt Prosper, and um, many others. We've got uh, um, Hands Off, This May Be Love. That's a terrific book. Uh, We've got the uh, alphabet book. Anyway, a bunch of stuff. Go along, take a look. Individual books. Use the the promo code GIFT25, G-I-F-T-2-5, for um, a special discount this week on on those. And that um, that means that I have to wish you a wonderful week of good times with your families, with your faith, with your friends, and with your finances. And I know that at this time of the year, we're all busy buying gifts for one another. So those finances need to be stretched or rather they need to be enhanced. They need to be augmented. They have to be grown. They have to be escalated. And a lot of the material that I teach is on revenue enhancement, uh, the activities, the things, the right things to do, the wrong things to avoid. All of those at rabbidaniellappin.com. So have a wonderful week. We'll be back together next week with a new show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.